Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Managing Violence Podcast, where we talk all things self-defense, aggression management, and violence prevention. Your host, as always, is a violence management specialist and the founder of Progressive Defense, Joe Saunders. episode of the Managing Violence podcast. Uh, today is our very, very first live interview uh, with uh, with another person in studio, as it were, or uh, although this particular time, it's not, we're not really in a studio, we're actually recording in my, my new home dojo. So uh, I'd like to welcome uh, one of the directors of the Combat Arts Institute of Australia and uh, a very experienced martial arts instructor, Mr. Ron Emram. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, you, you will pick up there is some background noise. We're not doing this on Skype. We're not in a nice... Uh, sterile environment so uh please bear with us if there's background noises uh yeah it'll, it'll add to the authenticity of the conversation i'm sure that's right all right Ron, if you can uh, just for the sake of our listeners if you just introduce yourself and um give us a little bit of background about your your story and and uh your experience in the martial arts and in violence prevention sure so um i grew up in israel and trained in traditional martial arts growing up uh mostly in aikido and karate uh, i used to compete in fencing a lot and being a relatively rowdy teenager um, and going to a pretty rough high school, I just used to get into a few scraps here and there and found much like a lot of people who do traditional martial arts, there's a big gap between martial arts and self-defense. Um, I remember the very first time that I kind of got into a scrap and got into like a big wide kind of karate type stance and got kicked in the balls um, yeah. <laughs> and realized that, that that doesn't work. Yeah, wide stances are good for that. Yeah. Um, what did work was later when the guy wasn't looking, I tapped him while the show, turned around and I punched him really hard and ran away. Um, and I was like, okay, <laughs> there's a big difference between what I'm learning and, and what actually works here. Um, moved to Australia when I was, just before I turned 17. Uh, at which point I, I kind of stopped training um, for a long time. I was always still into fitness and you know went to the gym, that kind of stuff. At this point, I also started working as a musician. So you know I'd be working a lot of late nights in nightclubs and stuff like that. And while I wasn't, you know, most of the time I'd be either on stage or backstage. I wasn't always involved with what was actually going on. But doing it for ten years, you still see fights on you know a few sure. times a night, almost every night. Yeah, someone, uh, someone asking you to play uh, Masharona for the 15th <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Uh, or guys trying to jump on stage when you've got a guitar and you're somehow trying to fend them off. Uh, on top of just seeing, you know, the bouncers doing their work. So I was doing that for the better part of 10 years and just got a lot of exposure, kind of like uh, just through, through seeing a lot of it live mm-hmm. through to some of the kind of social violence that was going on there. Um, got back into martial arts and self-defense with um, Sensei Noah Greenstone probably about 10 or 12 years ago. I can't remember exactly how long ago it was. It was a long time. Uh, and that was when I really started getting into more of the self-defense stuff. So we're doing Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, Filipino martial arts, but a lot of Krav Maga and a lot of uh, kind of real-world applications. So Noah grew up training in LA under Mike and Meredith, uh, Mike Belzer and Meredith Gold, you previously had on the show. Mm-hmm. So I was training with him and kind of went through through that. Eventually met Gav Schneider and kind of fell under Gendai Krav Maga. Mm-hmm. A lot of the training I was also doing with, with uh, Master Manny D'Amatos, who I've, I've told you about and I, I hold in very high respect, and he's got a ton of real-world violence experience. 
And at some point, I remember asking him, um, what do I need to do to kind of really test this stuff? Because, you know, we, you can do sparring, but it's not the same. And you can do scenario training, but you, as good as it is, you know it's not the real thing. And he suggested I go and get a gig as a bouncer. Mm-hmm. So I, I did my course and, and worked doors for a while. And it was an interesting experiment for me because at this point, you know, I was already close to 30. I had a long-term girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I had a career as a lecturer yeah, uh, in university. I, I had to the number of time I had to bounce students who just yeah. randomly rocked up yeah, uh, where I was actually, working. You're actually the part of your life where most bouncers retire. Exactly right. Yeah, normally, and, normally, most of us get out of the game when we get the girlfriend and the job and the yeah and the, the responsibilities. You actually went into the into the job with that. Exactly right. Uh, so I did that for a while, and that was really just as a testing ground to see whether. What I was doing was working. Um, I was pleasantly surprised <laughs> to find, well, not surprised, but you know, pleasantly reassured yeah. that it did. Um, and also really taught me a lot of the stuff that we'll, I guess we'll get to that later, but is, is I think is probably criminally undertaught in a lot of the stuff that we train in, in terms of the, the pre and post. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I was often told almost on a, on a weekly basis was, you are the nicest bouncer I ever met. Mm-hmm. So very early that I have to put my hands on somebody just because I was personable and knew how to talk to people and present options, you know, frame options in a way that they would want to leave. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so so you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned that you had a job as a lecturer at a, at a university. Correct. So if, uh, just for our listeners benefit, what's the, uh, so what field did you lecture in and uh, what's your academic pedigree? So. I lectured in finance and professional communications, primarily. Uh, I did my Bachelor of Business majoring in finance and economics, mm-hmm. uh, which I graduated in uh, a long time ago. <laughs> I can't even remember. Um, I then did my honors uh, with my research being specific to, surprisingly enough, uh, risk and volatility management. So a lot of the same principles apply. Sure. You know, you use different metrics, or different ways to measure it, but really it comes down to which is the way that I look at self-defense a lot of the time is, is risk and return. Mm. Um, so I, I did my, my, uh, my honors in finance and then was working in academia for a long time after that. I, I also hold degrees in, I've got a degree in music. Uh, I've done a lot of stuff in security and fitness. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got some qualifications in risk and security management. So I've kind of been in education for a very long time. My parents are both educators. So I used to teach music, and then I taught business, and then I taught fitness for a while and self-defense, which is why my interest in, in teaching has always been kind of like at the forefront. Yeah, and that's something that, uh, that when we're talking about this show and, and what we could talk about, what, what topic would be interesting, you, you mentioned that uh, uh, talking about how to, how to teach self-defense uh, is a is a key uh, subject for you or pet subject for you because uh, it's interesting listening to you talk because you, you've taught across so many different areas that I think it, uh, it, it shows a level of competency at the actual art of instructing. Well, thank because you. Because someone can teach music just by being a good musician. Someone can teach business by, by being good at business. But if you can teach music and business and fitness and security and risk management and self-defense there's a good chance that you're actually just a good teacher uh, yeah so that, that, that's that's why i think uh, this will be a really interesting topic so for those of you that, uh, that are playing along at home the topic that we're really focusing on today is uh is the art of teaching self-defense so and at first it may seem that this isn't relevant unless you are a professional martial arts instructor or self-defense instructor but i'd like to think that uh 
every single person out there that has children is interested in teaching them how to stay safe and is interested in teaching them some basic life skills. And if you're interested enough to listen to this podcast, you obviously take your own personal safety and uh, you, you have an interest in violence that, uh, that is, uh, is a feature of your life. So I imagine it's something you want to pass on to your kids and your loved ones and your friends and family. So don't switch off just because you're not a professional martial arts instructor. Everybody is a teacher in some way or another. So that hopefully there'll be, there'll be elements we can take out of this conversation for everybody. Absolutely. And I think to add to that, you had an excellent podcast recently about what are the things that you should look for when you go look for a good self-defense school. And I think even as a student, it's really important to know what makes a good instructor so that when you go somewhere, you have an idea of the quality of the, the service and the product that you're getting. Yeah. Because there is such a huge variation and martial arts, self-defense are not a standardized industry. Mm-hmm. Whether they should or should be is maybe a debate for another time. But having some ideas about what would a good self-defense instructor look like, sound like, what would they teach you, what would they talk about, can help you make decisions that ultimately can affect your safety and how you would manage violence. Absolutely. So from your perspective, uh, we'll dive right into the meeting subjects. What do you think is the, uh, the most common failing you see in instructors in the martial arts? Okay, that, that is a broad topic. Yeah. We can talk about many failures. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's just talking about ourselves. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, you know, a lot of it comes from self-failures as well. I mean, you know, when you teach, or at least you should, in my opinion, be very uh, uh, critically aware of what it is that you're doing and constantly review. I review every session. You know, I'll go home and I'll take notes. What did I do that worked, what that didn't? So, you know, I try and learn from my failings, and I've had many. Mm-hmm. Um a couple of things, I know you said one, but I'll, I'll pick on a couple. Yeah, by all means. So, one of the sayings that I really like by Richard Dimitri and Gershon Ben Karen, who you've had on the show, says something very similar, which is uh, technique is incidental. Mm-hmm. And you've got an excellent uh, article on your website that talks about the, the pyramid that we talked about yeah, before. So, sure. the most important thing in terms of survival and managing violence is your fighting spirit. Mm-hmm. After that, we're looking at physical attributes. Um, experience with violence and least important is technique mm-hmm. but most of the time we look in self-defense we approach it from the other way around and that is I don't know if it's it's coming more from the expectation of people who come in mm-hmm. and they say you know I got to learn these techniques to be able to do X or Y mm-hmm. and that's where the majority of time is spent and that's what takes the longest amount of time to develop but where this becomes an epic failure in my opinion is where people get locked into this is the right way to do it mm-hmm. and there isn't any variation in terms of this is the curriculum that we have and if you step outside the curriculum you are wrong yeah. did I survive the violent encounter or not that should be the, the yeah. only criteria yeah. there's, no, there's no style points on the street 100% and there's a story that I, I really like where we have uh, one of our uh, guys who've been training with us for a long time. He's, he's a blue belt in Gendai Krav Maga, which is relatively high in, in the system. Um, he's been in the Navy for 15 or 20 years. Uh, he's not a small guy. right? He's 6'1", 6'2", 90 kilos, goes to the gym every day, so the dude's a tank. He's done karate or some other striking arts for a long time. Like He can handle himself, no doubt about that. At some point, he had to move away from Perth. He was living in another city, and he was trying to find another place to train in Krav. And he found 
one of the kind of big commercial craft schools and thought that was the only thing that's available, I'll go train there. Came in as a white belt. They give him the list of techniques. Um, and he trained there for six months, went to do a grading and dropped every single guy they put in front of him, did not get stabbed in any of the pressure drills, you know, was doing everything ace and failed because yeah. he didn't do it the way that they liked it. Because when somebody runs at you with a knife uh -huh. from a distance, the only thing that you are allowed to do is to throw a front push kick, right. nothing else. And okay, yeah. arguable, you know, we get into a technique, whatever. I, but, think, I think Bruce Lee ranted about this in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. And we're still do, we're still doing it forty five years later, and yeah, yeah. So you know, he kind of said thank you very much and left. But that is something that you see so often. That uh, yeah, I think that's one of the probably biggest failures that we look at. So being stuck to a curriculum as opposed to an end result. Yeah, exactly right. And I think self defense, martial arts is another thing, but self defense specifically needs to be taught with outcomes and principles in mind rather than techniques everything's meant to facilitate that and then how do you cater for one of the things that we talked about you know if you've got a different range of students in terms of age physical ability experience with violence past trauma um you know their like day-to-day -day life context is so different sure how do you cater to that and if you stick to a very strict curriculum of techniques i don't think that that's gonna work yeah, I think it, I mean, it's an extreme example, and it, but it illustrates the uh, the ridiculousness of that approach. Is uh, I've seen uh, you, I've, got, I've seen some great uh, great videos and articles on returned service people that have come back with missing limbs mm. that have then gone into an art like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and, and managed to have success yeah. despite having one leg or one arm. Absolutely. You're like, well, if you've been greater on how well he could throw a left hook and he doesn't have a left arm, then he's never going to progress in the system. But, exactly right. But if it's about combat effectiveness uh, and diligence and dedication to learning, then uh, which really should be the key elements. I mean, not everyone's going to be able to do every technique. Um, exactly right and and even some of us like, you know, like both of us have had some significant injuries over the years like there are techniques that I used to be able to do all the time that I just won't do anymore because it, like you said the risk return isn't there <laughs> so, absolutely yeah absolutely uh, and I think that also kind of leads to the other <laughs> huge failure which we touched on when you and I talked about before uh, prior to the podcast which is if we're talking about Krav Maga mm. you know contact combat yes Everything's got to be done with contact, with resisting opponents, with unpredictable responses. Mm -hmm. And if you're not training that way, then you're, yep. yeah, you're teaching yep. yourself to fail. It's it's fantasy. Absolutely, you know, it works in th theory. Works in theory. <laughs> I, I liken it to swimming, swinging your arms around in the air and saying you're learning how to swim. Absolutely, yeah. Jump yeah. in the water and have a go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You don't know if it's working until there's a threat of drowning. <laughs> Absolutely. So. Yeah, I think those two things tend to, to kind of come together. Mm -hmm. I think that's for me. Yeah, so, so the, the adherence to strict curriculum and the, uh, the removal of contact from training. Uh, Absolutely. We should probably unpack that a little bit because people that aren't martial arts uh, instructors or aren't in the industry may be confused as to... Um, I, mean, we, we, I talked at length last, I'm not in the last episode, the last couple of episodes about why contact is important, but... Um, perhaps we don't understand why contact gets taken out, uh, and I think you're probably in a unique position to, to talk to this because you're, you're a commercial uh, school owner who derives income from student retention. Oh, totally. Uh, and if you make the class 
too unpalatable for the average person who walks in the door, then that's going to hurt you financially. So without a doubt. So if you want to uh, just just talk on that a little bit about how you manage that balance between making the classes realistic, but also making sure that they're viable commercially. Sure. So, and that's a really hard balance. It's also something that because we try to deliver what we would like to think of as a quality service, we are fairly uncompromising on, which I, I think is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think there's got to be a couple of things. Uh, a quote from Master Many, Dematos, that I really like is, there are two realities to combat sport or self-defense. And I, I, realities are absolutes. I don't like absolutes, but let's use it as an absolute. <laughs> the first one is you're going to get hit by another human being. The second one is you're going to have to hit another human being. If you look at violent encounters most of the time, those two things are going to happen. Yes. And how do you get people used to that? Most people would be uncomfortable with one or the other or both. And that's probably a good thing. Otherwise, they're probably psycho, you know, a psychopath. <laughs> um, <laughs> if they derive great pleasure from hurting people or people hitting them, you know, you'd be a bit concerned. Yeah. So... I think obviously there's got to be uh, some integration of, of uh, moderation in terms of how much contact you add at different spots. Mm-hmm. So to start with, it could be something like just light taps. Mm-hmm. Gradually, as you get better, maybe you're looking at you know sparring or, or with gloves, so the contact is a bit harder, and maybe some you know if you're really into it, then you're doing full contact pressure drills, maybe some bare knuckle stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff is really like, great. It's, it's great. It's, uh, the, uh, the early exposure is, yeah, it's like teaching someone to swim by letting them uh, walk in the wading pool first, you know, rather than throwing them into a four meter deep tank and trying to figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think there's got to be some desensitization to that. And it's the same when we look at, uh, I look at, you know, let's say physical contact, but the same when you're looking at verbal de-escalation, where a lot of time people go, okay, Let's teach you some desensitization. You've got a guy going off at your face mm-hmm. from zero to 100. You go, and people freak out. Then I've never been exposed to anything like that. I've never seen it. They never come back. It's very emotionally draining and scary and unpleasant. I don't want to go to a class when somebody just yells and swears at me for an hour. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll just pay money for that. 100%. So, how do you build that over time? And how do you teach people what are the different stopping points? Over time, and going, now is enough contact and not too much. Mm-hmm. You can tie that to rank or some form of again ranking self-defense all kind of stuff discussion for another time right but you can't tie that to rank and experience Mm -hmm. we are fairly fortunate that at combat arts we've got a range of of, uh, styles that we teach in the school so we go here's Krav Maga is kind of where you put everything together but if you want to get used to some contact and sparring we've got sparring classes five times a week go do some boxing and we tie jump in with these and then you're working on your striking anyway yeah And same thing with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Judo or wrestling, which we also do. (laughs) Sorry, I'm kind of backtracking and circling a lot. But the problem sometimes with that approach is that then people go, well, am I paying you to do Krav? I should just do do boxing instead or do BJJ instead. So trying to integrate all of those. So moderate the contact. um, And... I think unpredictable responses and resisting opponents is really the, the, the key thing here, that even if the contact is very light, your opponent doesn't always give you the technique or doesn't do the, you know, what, what, what you affectionately refer to as the flying Superman pose. Or, yeah, so things yeah. are always dynamic, and that in itself, I think, adds a lot of value, even Absolutely. without hard contact. 
And I think uh, a lesson here for parents, because this is a lesson I learned just recently. My, I've, got, I've got four daughters. My oldest is uh, six and a half. And uh, just this year, I started trying to teach her. No, well, last year, I should say. I started trying to teach her some, some basics of self-defense. And uh, she's just started doing judo now, and she's, she's enjoying it. But uh, uh, it, it was good for me to uh, apply some of my own, I guess, coaching learnings to teaching her because I haven't taught kids that young before. And uh, such a challenge. It's gotta be a game, it's gotta be fun, it's gotta be something that she looks forward to or else she's gonna hate it forever and then I'm never gonna get a chance to teach her what I think she needs to know. And uh, Absolutely. I think we um, we sometimes go, well of course they're kids, but we miss the point that also applies to adults. A hundred percent. I mean for an adult that is that's spending let's say hundred and fifty dollars a month on self defense training or, or martial arts training, that's $150 they could be spending on a lot of fun. That could be a night out, it could be a couple of dinners, it could be, uh, you know, I was going to say DVD rentals, but that really, <laughs> that really ages me if I say that. <laughs> it, it, it could be a lot of very premium online services. That's right. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do with 150 bucks that are more fun than showing up somewhere where you're going to get punched in the face. Absolutely. So if, if there's something that's... Uh, uh, it, it, there's things about real self-defense that is sometimes unpalatable, which is like, like the contact and the aggression and the, the verbal elements, but a good instructor needs to know how to moderate and regulate that to introduce it, to drip feed it, so that, uh, like you said, like maybe it just starts with touch drills, where the person is literally just getting tapped on the forehead with fingertips to let them know that their head was exposed, as opposed Absolutely. to being punched. Yeah. Uh, and then as they get more comfortable with that, then the, the inoculation starts to take effect and you, you can build up over several years to the point where they're able to spar with full contact. Absolutely. But, but yeah, I think uh, it was an interesting learning for me as a parent just uh, realizing uh, how little I knew about teaching kids until I actually had to teach my own kids. And I thought, man, if my own kids want to listen to me, how are the kids going to go? I'm dreading the day. <laughs> I've got a nine-month-old and uh, obviously I wanted to, to be able to learn self-defense at some yeah. point. I think it's going to have to be done with one of the other instructors. I, th- I think it might be hard to be dad and sensei at the same time. Yeah, I've actually done that with, uh, with my kids' judo classes. I refuse to teach the class. Yeah. So uh, and initially I wasn't going to. Initially I was going to be on the mat and I thought that would help her. Uh, and then uh, my buddy who's, who owns the judo club, uh, Evo, he said to me, uh, he goes, actually, it'd be better if you give her at least the first month without you on the mat because otherwise she won't listen to anyone else. She'll just run to dad. Yeah, uh, and if she doesn't know how to do something, she'll wait until you come around where she needs to learn to listen to all the sensei. Yeah, and uh, it made a lot of sense. I, I remembered from teaching kids class, kids judo classes used to happen all the time. Yeah. So, uh, so as a point of that, I've uh, not made myself available for the kids class. And she asked me every week, "Kid, Dad, Dad, are you going to start teaching my judo class now?" And I keep saying, "Oh, maybe not this week. Maybe not this week." But realistically, <laughs> I want her to learn from other people, and I can train her at home. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so if, if I can just backtrack for a second, you touched sure. on something that I think is really important. Mm. Is You said obviously you can desensitize people over a period of time, sometimes years. And that is some of the other problems sometimes you see with self-defense is that people don't want to spend years. They yeah. don't want to, I don't want to spend 5, 10, 15 years to get a black belt to be able to defend myself. Mm-hmm. What if my need is immediate? Mm-hmm. The fear is immediate. That's why they're there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to be afraid about this in five years. I'm afraid of this now. Yeah, 100%. So how do you a give them something that they can use or they feel they can use immediately yep. how do you help develop the confidence so they're hard a target straight away mm-hmm. without 
making them scared and breaking them or making everything worse. I think a lot of that comes down to um, preparation. And I think yeah. if someone has a, has a real immediate fear and a real immediate danger, then it's a matter of sitting them down and saying, okay, well, if you want this in the short course format, Absolutely. just be prepared that it's going to suck. Yeah. And that there's, there's no way around this. We have to do this the painful way because you haven't given us enough time to do it the easy way. Exactly right. Uh, I, I remember a job that I uh, had lined up, which uh, thankfully probably never, it never came off. <laughs> I was looking at doing some international work. I won't go into too many specifics because I'm sure. not sure uh, which side of history I'm on. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I was looking at doing some international work where I had to go to a uh, country in Southeast Asia uh, and I had to serve some legal paperwork on uh, uh, someone who owed some money to some people. And uh, this particular person was uh, protected or associated with people that had a reputation for uh, doing some pretty interesting things with machetes. Sure. And uh, we were being hired, or myself and my uh, my partner dragged me into this, broke me into this very well-paying but interesting-sounding job. Yeah. Uh, we were being brought in basically as the muscle to make sure these papers got served. And uh, I remember hitting up Ray Floro, who's an edge weapon specialist in Sydney, who I trained with previously. And I said, Ray, I've got two weeks before I go to this country. And I told him the situation, and I said. I need to know everything you know about machete defense. <laughs> and, and man, we got after it. We, we, trained, we trained hard, but I didn't mind the fact that it sucked because to me, the threat was real. And exactly. And uh, I thought if, if, it saved, yeah, if it only saves you once a year, it's a good year, right? If, it's a, if the machete technique works once, it's a good technique. 100%. So uh, thankfully, the job never actually came off and uh, it didn't end up going. But uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think... Uh, yeah, to answer that question, I think if, if someone has an immediate fear and they, they don't intend to train long-term, then we just have to have that honest conversation about this is what it takes then. Absolutely. And I think in terms of a business owner, I think maybe that's why aware maybe some schools might falter and go, well, we can cater for that. It'll be great. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to being honest about it and just say, well, it's going to suck. Um, I'd like to think we're, we're on obviously the right side of the fence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've told people that before. Well, I think it's the same as if you go to a personal trainer and say, I want to lose 20 kilos in the next 12 months versus I need to lose 20 kilos this month. Absolutely. Both things are possible. One of them's going to suck a lot more than the other. 100%. Uh, I think that's a, it's just the reality of the situation. And uh, look, sometimes our role is reconnecting people with reality. That's why I call reality-based self-defense, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially sometimes people most divorced from reality are the long-term martial artists. 100%. Shout out to everyone like us. <laughs> yep. So. Uh. All right, so um, just moving on, one of the things we talked about in the, the last couple of hours we've been together uh, is how um, there are certain elements of self-defense and violence management that we both agree are, are undertaught. We, we, we touched on earlier about techniques and, and how uh, we, we get fixated on learning techniques and we don't think about learning the, the pre-incident, the post-incident and the, all the other factors, the situational awareness, the avoidance, the de-escalation skills. So I'd be interested to get your opinion uh, or your insight as, a, as an educator as to how you think those skills can be taught because most, most of us in this industry that become self-defense instructors come from a background where 95% of our training was physical. So we have a pretty good idea of how to teach a front kick. We have a pretty good idea of how to teach a double leg takedown. 
teaching someone how to talk for most of us was a long-term acquired skill that we learned the hard way. Uh, and it's yes. hard, hard to transfer those lessons. So I'd be really interested to know what you think about how to teach those skills. Absolutely. So first of all, just like you said, I think, and, and I'm quoting you, this is stuff that is criminally undertaught in our industry in terms of both the pre and the post. Mm-hmm. And 95, 99, depends on you know where you go, is focused on the during. So let's start with the pre because that's the stuff that... Yes, there is an ice cream truck going past. <laughs> so, just for anyone who suddenly got hungry, there is an ice cream truck going past the dojo. Sponsors. Uh, I'm not even going to edit it out just because I love the fact that an ice cream truck interrupted the podcast. It's great. Carry on, um, What was I talking about? The Do pre. It. So, let's start with the pre, pre-incident stuff because I think that's stuff that probably people focus on more. And then, if we look in situational awareness and the escalation, that's kind of where it sits. One of the things that you touched on previously is that people don't often have enough experience. Mm-hmm. but a lot of instructors don't spend the time in gaining that experience and for me that experience was gain going I don't know what I'm doing I'm going to go get a, a job as a bouncer and that's where I learned you know I taught professional communication at university for 10 years yeah. but it's very different when you've got somebody going off in your face and wants to punch your face in yeah. in terms of how you communicate with them under pressure it's not the same thing at all yeah you couldn't, couldn't write a strongly worded email back then yeah that's right it always reminds me of Team America <laughs> with that. we're, we're going to be angry with you and we're going to write a letter telling you how angry we are <laughs> Um, so a couple of things you got to take the time to as an instructor to to be aware of your own shortcomings and spend the time fixing them mm-hmm. the other thing is it's got to be fun and palatable to a certain degree mm-hmm. uh, so if, if you're going into a class and shouting at people and you know kind of dropping all kind of language that people may not be ready for or willing to accept yet that's where you lose people and my experience with running a lot of scenario classes in the past has been that that was the problem that when we do verbal desensitization drills you kind of go from zero to a hundred very very quickly it's almost the same as if you're thinking about sparring where you go okay you've done some pad work now there's a world champion boxer over there go and do a few rounds and you know next thing you know you wake up on the floor going what happened and it's almost the same thing as opposed to going okay let's do one touch sparring or yeah. so I think that stuff has got to be gradually introduced mm-hmm. some of the things that Mike uh, Belzer and Meredith Gold touched on which I think are really important is people have got to be aware and be made aware and repeatedly reminded that it's not personal yes. because sometimes when you're trying to be a bad guy especially if you don't have an experience in how to be a good bad guy mm-hmm. is you're trying to think of things that will get under their skin you end up saying things that maybe Maybe some real bad guy will say, but they're horribly inappropriate for somebody in their first or second session trying to deal with aggression. Yeah, I think I think with that little that kind of training, the uh, the verbal desensitization or inoculation training, or you know, there's a bunch of other terms for it. But uh, yeah, to to make it effective, you have to be able to go to a personal place because if you if you say to someone, "I want you to be a real bad guy and try and get an emotional reaction out of someone," but you're not allowed to talk about their race, their sexuality, their weight, their Exactly right. No no one's going to be triggered then if you can't be personal. And the whole point of the drill is to make them triggered so they can feel that rush of emotion and and, and to ignore it or to stay focused. Um, But I do think, yeah, I think rushing someone into that is a silly idea. And I think 
it needs to be 100%, 150% consensual. But they exactly need to know right. ahead of time, this is what we're doing. If you show up, this is what it is, and then I'm still going to get consent. And you can still abort at any time during the drill. Absolutely. Uh, and, and we'll have safety officers around who will pull it if it looks like it's getting out of hand. Absolutely. Yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt. And I think the other thing that's got to be added, which I think it needs to be added to anything that you do when you teach, is explain why you're doing it. This is what we're going to do. This is why it's important to do it. This is what you're going to get out of doing it. And you got to reinforce it after you've done it. Yeah. Otherwise, especially with all the adrenaline, by the time they get it in, they probably forgot what, they, what it was you said at the start. 100%. I mean, we used to do these drills uh, quite regularly in seminars. Uh, not regular classes, just seminars. And uh, part, of, part of my role as an assistant instructor in these drills was to basically walk around. and uh, so, so the way we structured it, we'd have one person who had their hands behind their back who was the victim yeah. uh, and their only job was to not react yes so whereas the, the bad guy's job was they could do anything they could say anything they wanted any language any racial homophobic slurs whatever it doesn't sure. matter they were allowed to touch the person's face and they were allowed to they weren't allowed to injure them but they yeah. could pie face them they could clip them around the ears they could poke them in the belly they could do yep. whatever they wanted to do physically yeah it didn't cause harm uh, and then Basically, the uh, the defender or the victim's job was to not react yep. to that provocation. Yes. Uh, and part of our role as the safety officers or the assistant instructors was obviously if someone starts bringing their hands out from behind their back, we pull the drill straight away. Yeah. Because we could be in there about to swing a punch. That's right. Uh, but oftentimes we would see someone who was physically doing all the right things, but you could look in their eyes and see no, we've, we've crossed a line. Yes. And it's it's gone too far now. And, uh, and you never really knew what line it was that caused it, but... Uh, uh, the, think, the line is different for different people. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes there's accumulation. Like, it wasn't something totally. they said. It was just the duration of the abuse. 100%. Uh, and it's, it's funny because uh, from my experience as a bouncer, like, people... Uh, I used to, like, give points to people if they called me something I hadn't heard before. Because, like, uh, <laughs> after a couple of years, like, man, I've been called everything. Absolutely. It's like, so, if someone... I remember one guy called me mean. And I was like, huh. No one's ever called me mean before. Because <laughs> that's kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. <laughs> Actually, I remember the best insult I ever had was uh, I threw a guy out of the club and he said, uh, he said, well, you wouldn't be so tough without your steroids. And I looked at him and I looked at me and I looked at myself. I was like, really? You think I look that good? <laughs> so, I, was like, I was like, you need to set your standards much higher. This is perfectly attainable. <laughs> I, walked, I walked away feeling quite pleased with myself. That yeah, I right. looked good enough that I was on roids. But uh, yeah, coming back to your point about um, teaching the skills. Yeah, so people have to know why they're doing it. And I think it's got to come up to, to anything. One of the things we used to teach in professional communications when you're writing an essay or when you're making a presentation. Uh, the kind of three rules that I had is always introduction, body, conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. So tell them what you're about to tell them, tell them, then tell them what you told them. Yes. And for me, that's the same for class. You know, when you start the class, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, this is how we're going to do it. So you know all the steps. And then tell them while you're doing it, and then when you're done, this is what we're covering, this is why we covered it. Mm -hmm. So going back to that pre-stuff uh, pre when we're talking about desensitization, verbal de-escalation is number one, you gotta um, gradually introduce them mm -hmm. just like what you do with physical contact um, number two is I'm gonna borrow a phrase from, from Dave Congerton who's, who's one of our instructors he refers to it as having physical combina uh, sorry, verbal combinations mm -hmm. All right. so you, have, you wanna have a couple of, kind of standard responses that if nothing else buy you time but can 
work as you know uh, springboard phrases or diffusers for for kind of standard mm-hmm. especially if you're talking about social violence the monkey dance type thing sure. you know the kind of common attacks yeah. the verbal attacks that happen so things that you can fire off when you are adrenalized because you know you're not going to be able to to communicate effectively under stress yeah, absolutely. so how do you practice those over and over again and one of the things you have to do for that i feel is is and that's the point where it takes time is pick very specific scenarios and drill them over and over and over and over again with similar verbal attacks so you got the, the similar verbal comebacks yeah yeah I, I think sometimes that drilling that is so difficult to get right because you, the last thing you want is for someone to be scripted because uh, as soon as someone changes the questions the answers don't make any sense exactly right uh, I know uh, a mutual friend Rich Dimitri says yes. uh, you know, it's, it's like rehearsing a date before you have it uh, and if, yeah. you have, if you have four questions lined up for your date and I think the, the example I remember him using was Asking, asking the girl, um, what do you do for work? Do you enjoy it? Do you get along with your boss? Where do you see yourself going with this job? Yeah. And then you ask, what do you do for work? And she says, oh, I'm between jobs at the moment. <laughs> oh, do you enjoy it? Uh, well, actually, I'm not really. I mean, I'm unemployed. Do you get along with your boss? <laughs> Are you listening to what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so if you, uh, if you rehearse and script your verbal dialogue, it can come unstuck but at the same time having like a verbal IDA almost like a a verbal immediate defensive action yeah uh, where you can um, go okay I've heard that what are you looking at or you know uh, what's your problem like the very generic things totally immediate sort of like a a, 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 like a flinch response exactly right absolutely so you're totally right you know I think that's one of the other main problems with teaching self-defense is that creating scenarios that are identical is almost infinitely impossible because of the infinite number of variables that happen in real world violence. No two things will almost ever happen exactly the same. But if you look at key variables, there's probably going to be a lot of them that get repeated. So, you know, maybe focus on those a little bit more. And if nothing else, and that's kind of what I mentioned when we talked about those, those verbal combos, if nothing else, even if they just buy you a, a split second or a second or two to think about where you're going from there, that's still a good thing. Yeah. As opposed to just, you know, getting dumbstruck and going, you know, you're, you're gagging and you're kind of flailing with your arms and you don't know what you're saying, yeah. which is, you know, happens to everybody when they do that at first. Yeah. So even if you got something, you can just go verbal idea. Just okay, get cool. something go from there. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, sometimes uh, we say physically that breaking the freeze is the most important part. Exactly right. So we talk about, um, uh, especially when I'm talking to people about home safety and home invasions yeah. and things like that. The, the worst thing or the hardest thing is getting out of the freeze. Yes. Uh, and having spoken to a lot of victims of home invasions, that the number of people that tell me the phone was next to my bed and I couldn't even get to it to dial triple O. Yeah. Or nine one one. Yeah. Because I just couldn't make myself move. I was so terrified. Yes. And uh, the most common or the best advice we can give in that situation is just do something. Exactly right. Even if it's not the thing you should do, just do something. Exactly. Because if you do something, you'll break the freeze and your brain will start working again. Hundred percent. Doesn't matter if you get up and start tap dancing. Just do something. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, you see this a lot with. Uh, predatory violence yes. where, where a victim has been selected and they've been targeted for a reason yes uh, and uh, the, the the predator has a rehearsed spiel and they will go into their spiel knowing that they'll cause a verbal stun and Mary exactly talks right. about this in, in her episode where the, her um, would-be abductor 
uh, started the attack with a verbal challenge. Correct. Which made her freeze. Yeah. Uh, and the person who freezes and tries to engage intellectually when everything has ground to a halt because they're terrified is like a, like a rabbit in the headlights. Absolutely. And they're, they're, they're ripe for the picking. So. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I really like what you're saying there. What about, what about post-incident? What do you think... Um, what do you teach from a post-incident point of view and how can instructors be better at that? Sure. So, okay, first thing is, and we're talking about, you know, absolutes. I don't, you know, yeah. I don't like absolutes, but let's let's use a couple just in case. The old um, better to be tried by 12 than carried by 6 thing that every time I hear it, I, I want to cry. Yeah. Um, you got to be... Said, a, said by someone who's never been tried by 12. <laughs> um you got to be aware of what like the self-defense laws are in your context or the, where your students are. And that, I mean, that's as, as simple to start with as doing a bit of research. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think you got to be teaching people about litigation mm-hmm. and that means multiple force options for different situations. Cause not everything's going to call for, you know, drop the guy with a straight right stomp on his head 10 times. Yeah. The majority of cases won't, especially if we're looking at social violence as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, the guy who's going to try and murder you and your whole family. So, a bit of research. We got to talk about retaliation, and we got to talk about uh, post-traumatic uh, stress, as well as maybe some first aid. Mm-hmm. Right. So, one of the things that we do is we run fairly regular first aid courses, mm-hmm. and we invite everybody to come down. And our instructor uh, Hilton, he's one of our black belts. He also runs a security company. He's got an RTO, so he does a lot of first aid training. So we tailor it a lot to the type of stuff that happens in the self-defense context. So mm-hmm. we kind of run scenarios and, and work with that. So that's, that's a great start. Um, we talk about the laws of self-defense on a regular basis in class. Um, I think in terms of retaliation and stuff like that, it's more stuff that people have to be aware of. There's no really way you can train that. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's gonna come back and find out where you live three years down the track, <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. That probably comes down to more to don't be, be an aware. ass. Just and, be, yeah, yeah. Just, just be aware and try to conduct yourself with some dignity. Exactly right. So one of the things that I like to do in those contexts is if we run through, let's say, scenarios, you know, you, you practice some drills. Uh, let me run you through the way that I like to do it. Is uh, Let's say if we look at a particular, uh, you know, we'll start from a technical base, but let's say an IDA or integrated defensive action or a 360 or an outside block, whatever you call it, like defending with a circular, defense against a circular attack. Mm-hmm. And it can be high or low, and it can be strike or a tackle. So I give them two or three options, and then we tell the attacker to make it unpredictable. So you've got these three attacks. You don't know which one is coming. Deal with it. Give them a couple of different force options for every option. Run the drill again. Deal with it. Then I'll start tailing that into a scenario. So we might look at adding some verbal de-escalation beforehand. Then adding, let's say, another variable if they're advanced enough just to throw something in or all of a sudden your, you know, your husband, wife, mom, dad, cat, dog is with you and you have to be aware of that as well and, and use the appropriate force response. The last part of that would be, okay, let's assume you hit the guy and now his head is on the ground. What do you do? Yeah. And you've got... The problem is fitting that in, in, a, in an hour or 90-minute session. Yeah, yeah. And I think like, just, to, just to tag team with you here, um, my views on that has been that while the post and the pre are incredibly important, they also are skills that are fairly easy to transmit. 
it's, it's, it's like a lot of it's one-off information just needs to be touched on every now and then. So Correct. For example, use of force law. Once you know it, you know it. Exactly and, right. and if you had a refresher every six months or you had to quote it on your grading or whatever, Absolutely. Yeah, then you probably know it vast, vastly more than anyone else Correct. around you. So, uh, And I think same with situational awareness. There are drills you can do to, to incorporate that into the uh, warm-up and so on. Absolutely. So what I like to do is to have... Uh, that have specific seminars or like a, a specific class yes. where we do like, hey, we're going to do two hours on post-contact. So come along this Friday night. It's gonna, yeah, Come in your regular clothes. We're going to sit down. We're going to have a classroom talk. Uh, it's not going to be a sweat session. It's just going to yeah. be a, a, a chat and we're going to have some like a lecture almost, but a little bit of discussion. Uh, and, I, and I think we, we maybe dedicate time to that rather than trying to fit it in with the other drills. Absolutely. So. Yeah. So we, we run those kind of workshops uh, you know, fairly maybe not fairly often, but regularly enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've also done similar stuff with de-escalation and uh, you know sure. those kind of things. For and the good thing about that is those are transferable skills. Mm-hmm. So learning first aid is not just when you get into a fight; it can be for anything. Same thing when you're learning how to effectively communicate under stress. That's something you can use with your kids, with your wife or husband, with your friends, with your boss, with. In any type of situation, it doesn't have to be imminent violence. Yeah, look, I, I've been teaching de-escalation for years. Still can't de-escalate toddlers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I go straight to the distraction principle, <laughs> or I start bribing them. Yep. I'll give you two dollars to stop crying. <laughs> uh, so yeah, sometimes we run those as, as separate workshops. And the other challenge with teaching those is that if people want to come in and have a good workout. You know, yeah. de-escalation is not how you do it. No, that's right. That's right. You're not going to break the heads up at a time. Like, if you just want to hit the bag, it's going to be an open mat. Come along. If yeah. You, if you want to learn stuff that's actually going to keep you out of jail, come sit in the classroom. Absolutely. So, so, uh, so everyone, just we've got about ten minutes left before, sure. uh, before we need a bolt to get you to an airport. <laughs> I, I actually wrote an article about this um, several years ago. Uh, how to de-escalate dogs that are barking in the neighborhood. No, yep. uh, actually, I, I, it worked. It worked. You heard me. Well done. Uh, yeah, no, I wrote an article about this several years ago uh, about how traditional martial arts schools can add or inject realism into their training without deviating from their art. Yeah. So this is something that um, is uh, is very close to my heart because I, yes. I love the traditional martial arts. Same. And I know, yeah, I know you do as well. And uh, I think it's something that instructors out there may want to offer something more realistic, but they don't want to lose the heart of their karate or their taekwondo or their aikido or whatever it is. So what are some basic tips that you would give them to inject a little bit of realism, a little bit of um, self-defense quality into their, uh, into their normal offerings? Sure. So I think that's a really good question. And we've discussed before, you know, we both have a love for Kyokushin karate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've, I've never trained at it officially or for, you know, continuously for a long period of time. But I have a lot of friends who do, and I train a lot with uh, Sensei Dave Hughes, who's, who's the head of Kyokushin WA. We have these conversations often about the discussion on, on kata and bunkai, mm-hmm. you know, application and, and technique or principle. I think, so, I think the first point is, and, and I'll, I've come back to it a few times, so I'm going to quote a particular line, which I think is important. And it's, again, you, you find me quoting him quite a bit from Manny Dematos. Mm-hmm. The group of guys that have trained with him for a long time, um, we're all black belts in a bunch of different things. 
and he's taught a lot of us on the art of instructing. And one of his sayings that I really like is, you guys are all black belts, practitioners, but are you black belt instructors? So one of the things that's got to be important is if you're teaching something that you call it self-defense, do some research about that application in terms of if you don't have exposure to real-world violence, look at videos. There's so much that is available, and you touched on that in your previous podcast as well. So educate yourself a little bit about real-world violence. From there, I think a lot of it is about going back to doing, even if it's only a little bit, stuff with contact, unpredictable responses, and resisting opponents. Um, and it doesn't have to be full contact, 100% resistance, and 10 million different responses. But just to add that little bit of element of unpredictability, adrenaline, and some resistance. And those things over time accumulate and make a big difference. That even if that's only five or ten minutes, over time that accumulates and really you find out what are the things that work and don't work. Um, a lot of the time that's where you find where the stuff that's really technical, if you if what you've done it in, in sorry, let me retrace that for a second. If you're practicing a very technical move and when you've done it even only for a few minutes with somebody who is giving you contact unpredictable responses and is resisting you and you've made it work even if it only looks like an approximation of what it looks like in the kata then you've nailed it because that works yeah it works so I think that's probably the best place to start do some research and then look at those three components and add them gradually over time even if only for bits and pieces yeah Yeah. and look I think (laughs) there are people uh, in our industry and and both of us being probably our instructors uh, I think that the craft community hasn't earned itself too many friends when, uh, when people do this, but there's a uh, once Krav Maga became popular, uh, and same thing when, when MMA, MMA became popular, yep. <laughs> all of a sudden all the ground grappling was already in the carter. That's know? right. And when, when Krav Maga became popular, it was like, oh, all that stuff's already in the carter. Uh, and, and all of a sudden people were finding scrolls and uh, you know, <laughs> and, and sit outs and switches and, uh, and the uh, rolling omoplatas in their in their carter, in their karate carter. That's right. Uh, because it was, they're too proud to admit that there's something lacking. And, exactly. Uh, I think that sometimes we haven't earned uh, allies by pointing that out and saying you guys are being ridiculous. Oh, without a shame, without, without a doubt. Yeah. At the same time, as a, as a judo guy at heart, when uh, BJJ guys would tell me they invented the triangle choke, I took great <laughs> pleasure in showing them a manual from like 1915 yeah. that had the triangle choke in it. Uh, so there, I think the, the point I'm trying to get to here is that. There is nothing wrong with being proud of your art. And yes. look, to be honest, the the answer to most self-defense situations on a physical level is in your kata. You may have to go and study bunkai. You may have to go and really dedicate yourself and get hook up with an expert or whatever the relevant term is for your art. I'm using Japanese terms because I'm yes. not familiar with them. But uh, you may have to really hook up with someone to, to unpack them. But my suggestion, tagging with what Ron just said, is... Do the movement that works and then map it back to your system. Don't wait until you find the answer in your system. Exactly right. Because the most important thing is that your students are safer now. Absolutely. You can map it back later. You'll find something. Yeah. But teach them what works now. Absolutely. So I've actually got a, an article on my blog. You know, I, I write quite extensively and have for a long time um, where I talk about Venn diagrams and the connection between uh, martial arts, combat sports, and self-defense, right? which is something more self-defense guys have talked about quite a bit and where they intersect 
So that's exactly kind of the point, you know, find those intersection points. Mm. And it doesn't mean that everything is in that intersection point, but there's going to be a few things and you got to try and experiment and find the right thing that works rather than go about it the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's the key to all of this is that we should be teaching what works, not, not what has our Why didn't I just say that at the start? Yeah, just teach what works, guys. (laughs) Podcast over. (laughs) Check. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Guys, guys are genius. <laughs> Keep being good instructors to teach what works. All right, we're, we're gonna we're gonna start wrapping it up. Um, if people want to learn more about uh, you, your school, your blogs, what what uh, what have you got to pitch for us? What's, sure. So uh, the the best thing to uh, go for is probably for our website, mm-hmm. which is uh, www.caiakaya.com.au. Um, it's got a link to my blog there as well, and uh, just look up, up, look us up on Facebook, uh, Combat Arts Institute of Australia, or Ron Amram. Yep. I answer to both. Yeah, awesome. And uh, <laughs> Ron's also uh, also contributes to MarshallJournal.com as well. Um, I've just signed up there as well, so you'll start Fantastic. seeing some articles from me uh, in the in the near future. So, look, guys, uh, apologies. Uh, this this episode has been very delayed. I've been moving house and moving into this uh, beautiful new home dojo, which has a house attached to it. And uh, uh, I've been without internet and uh, most of my gear has been in a box for the past week. So, <laughs> so I apologize that we've been a little bit delayed getting this one out. I'm going to try and drop some bonus content in the next couple of days to make up for it. Uh, and uh, this one's a slightly shorter interview, but we do have to get Ron to an airport. So that, That'd uh, be great. Uh, just, just to make sure he actually gets home. <laughs> but I just want to thank Ron very much for, uh, for making the time, coming out, spending a bit of time, having a chat, having a train with me, and then, uh, and then recording the podcast. Yeah. It's been a, been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, man. Look forward to a few more, hopefully. Absolutely. Next time you're in town or I'm over there, we'll do it again. Beautiful. Cheers, man. Thanks, man. All right, guys, that wraps up episode nine of the Managing Violence podcast. Thanks for persevering with us through the delay and the the lack of episode last week. As I said, I'm going to try and drop some bonus content in the next couple of days just to to make up for that. And uh, also thank you for persevering through this... uh, rather noisy home dojo studio environment that I'm recording in at the moment. I'm going to be uh, doing some work over the next couple of weeks to try and soundproof things a little bit and get back to a slightly higher quality of sound. But uh, hopefully this is listenable and uh, and it wasn't too distracting for you. Uh, I look forward to uh, generating some more content. We've got some big things coming in the next couple of weeks that I can't really talk about just yet, but there's going to be some pretty cool stuff on the horizon. In the meantime, stay safe, train hard, and we'll talk to you again soon. listening to the Managing Violence Podcast with Joe Saunders. As always, for more information on any of the topics covered, you can visit www.progressivedefense.com.au. And to support the work we do, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Joe PD.